Hello, friends. Before we get into today's episode, I just have a couple of things for y'all. Um, number one is, unfortunately, today's episode is going to sound a little weird. Um, something was up with my mic. So 25 minutes into the recording, I had to switch to my computer mic. And then also something was up with Lark's audio. So this episode is maybe not going to have the same audio quality that you're used to. But we really hope that you still listen to this episode because it's a lot of fun. And we really love the Stock Material series. The other thing that I want to say is that there will be a content warning with timestamps in the show notes, since maybe not everyone is as familiar with these books as we are, we just want to make sure to point that out. And now enjoy this here episode. Hello and welcome to The Gaily Prophet, a humorous yet ruthless podcast where two queer nerds talk about media we love. I am Lark Malachi Gray. And I am Jesse Blount, and today I'm so excited to tell you that we are talking about the first half of the first book in his Dark Materials trilogy, The Golden Compass. Or if you're anywhere else in the world that's not the United States, The Northern Lights. We sure are. It's going to be so great. Um, brief rundown of what happens in the first half of this book. The Golden Compass takes place in a world much like ours, but also different in several key ways, the most important being that all humans have a demon, aka their soul on the outside of their body in the form of an animal. The animal can change form until around puberty, after which it becomes fixed in its final form. The story follows Lyra, who has grown up as an orphan being raised by the scholars of Jordan College in Oxford as she learns about dust, a mysterious elementary particle that is a threat to the church and also seems to bridge the gap between parallel universes, something called the General Ablation Board, who are kidnapping children for some nefarious end, and that her parents are Lord Asriel, an explorer and scientist who is currently imprisoned for heresy, and Mrs. Coulter, the leader of the General Ablation Board, who Lyra lived with briefly before escaping. She teams up with Egyptians, a nomadic people who have had several of their children taken, to head north and save all the kidnapped kiddos. Along the way, they team up with Yorick Bernison, an armored bear, and Lee Scoresby, an aeronaut. Team assembled, they load up their sleds and head into the tundra. All right. And for two days headline, as the church and government supports brutalizing and kidnapping children, Running to the north to live as an armored bear becomes millennials' new dreams. <laughs> That's true. Yep. <laughs> I was like, I was like, how topical without making it too painful can I make this? <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. Um, I want to live as a witch instead potentially um seems like there's a lot of like war involved with being an armored bear that i might not be although the witches are in wars too anyway we'll get there speaking of which (laughs) we're spoiling all three of these books but not the books of dust and probably not the tv show aside from maybe talking about casting namely i want to talk about 
Boreal being hot in the TV show. And how upsetting <laughs> I find that. Okay, yes. I think that's a good thing that we'll have to talk about. So yeah, we are just talking about the big three books of this here series. Um, and some auxiliary material. But you're not, don't worry, folks, if you haven't watched a television show, because I haven't finished it either. <laughs> yes, and I won't read the books of dust, so we're not talking about them. Anyway, um, what are the other things that we say? You know, join our Patreon, buy our merch, join our sticker club, follow us on the internet. And hey, we changed our Instagram handle. It's at hashtag ruthless pods now. Um, if you already follow us, nothing is different for you. But if you're like, oh, now's now's the time. I'm finally going to do it. Look for us there because that's where we are now. Yes. Everything's in the show notes. That's all. Let's talk about stuff. Please start, Jesse. We're in the front page, by the by, where we talk about everything that doesn't go anywhere else. Can we? Can I talk a little bit about how much I love these books first? <laughs> yes. Yes, please. <laughs> I really love these books. It's like out of control. Um, I like, I feel like I read these series when I was like 15 in between in the wait for the Harry Potter book. Cause I'm always like, what is the next thing to occupy myself? And uh, I found these books and I love a, I love a fantasy world, obviously. And just, I don't know. I think these books came in at the right time, the right age for me to be very deeply into them. And yeah, I don't know. I just, deeply love these books i'm glad we're gonna be talking about yeah yeah you've been wanting to do this for a really long time so i'm very glad that we finally are able to i think this is probably one of the few things that we are talking about that you have consumed more times than i have which i am really excited about i've read these books probably like four or five times but i think you do like a yearly reread right yeah, I usually try to reread these every couple of years um, because it's just the writing is so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's an incredible writer. It's it's undeniable. So yeah, starting off, I want to know who you think names demons. You know, I have to say, I I think I think it is the parents' demons who names them. <gasps> Oh, and not necessarily ooh. the parents themselves. Like I think it is the parents' demons that name the, the the children's demons. That makes so much sense. I really like that because like people names and demon names are very different feeling in this world. So it's not like parents just like pick a boy name and a girl name and are like whichever way it comes out, we'll just use both. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Because I was like, do they just like spontaneously have names? Do the kids name them when they like get old enough? But yeah, the de- the parents' demons naming them is like perfect. <laughs> I put a lot of thought into things like this. So yes, that is what I think. Cool. I want to start off with saying that so Lyra's world is much different. It's like a what if offshoot from our world. So there's a lot of things that are familiar. But I have to say that it's like kind of funny how like steampunk <laughs> Lyra's world feels yeah. and not in the sort of, I think, douchey way that <laughs> steampunk had like a moment with white people in like the 2000s and that was deeply confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, they're fucking Zeppelins and like, 
Lamps are like by whatever funny word for electric they have that I can never remember. Embaric. Embaric. And you're just like, what in the steampunk motherfucker? (laughs) (laughs) Which I love, but it just is also funny that like people who are into steampunk, I'm like, how come people who are into steampunk weren't just like, I'm also going to adapt this into my steampunk persona. Mm. It's also, it was always very bewildering to me. I'm like, this is like, this is the steampunk fantasy. <laughs> if you're looking for it, they're like your genre, be- genre bending stuff. Walking around with like a stuffed version of what their demon would be and it's wearing a monocle. Is that what you're imagining? Yeah. Everyone's wearing top hats, <laughs> including your demon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's great. Uh, um, actually, let's. I want to piggyback on that and ask what year you feel like this is set in. Because the only clue that we really have is that the wine that Azrael prefers is like old, an old wine, and it's from 1898. It's hard to say because we're in the mid 90s in our world in book two. So I guess part of it has to be that the historic split off between like whatever happens that the church is like the magisterium in this world and like maybe hasn't necessarily gone off to colonize the rest of the world in the same kind of way maybe me that it is like this is what the 19 the mid 90s look like in life's world mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not quite the same sort of uh you know hub of industry i think as we get in our world yeah, because it feels, I mean, they have, you know, gas-powered engines, it seems like. Maybe they're coal-powered, but I think they're gas-powered and stuff like that. But it definitely feels much further back in time to our universe. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like that they just, whatever factors, like, affected Right, having still a lot of like coal and steam and oil lamps and stuff just hasn't really, they haven't really moved beyond that. Right. So the first part of this book takes takes in in Oxford, which is also where Philip Pullman went to school, which Mm -hmm. you can tell because Jordan College is like based off of whichever college is like his, that he graduated from. Because there's like, there's like a bunch of tiny colleges that make up Oxford. And I know that you've, you have been to oxford in real life i have i don't know if you have anything relevant to bring to because i mean they must do like his dark material tours or something right oh yeah i mean i i don't uh you know do things (laughs) like that because people but um all of the libraries in old parts of the UK have a museum in the library. So the one, the big library in Oxford has like a little museum in it that has a ton of Philip Pullman stuff in it that I went and spent a lot of time looking at. And obviously I went to the botanical garden where the infamous bench is. And yeah, that has both a lot of Philip Pullman stuff and a lot of Lewis Carroll stuff, you know, marked in there. They're very much like, yeah, Alice in Wonderland and his dark materials. It's here. We we did that. Um, so <laughs> it's it's kind of it's everywhere. Um, and I definitely sought out all of it that I could. Sans having to, you know, 
be in a group of people walking slowly around a city. <laughs> That's fair. Um, which. I don't know. I think I thought that's that's awesome. And like, yeah, you two could go to Oxford and maybe not quite pretend to be a street, a street urchin like Lyra is being, but enjoy some of that uh, old collegiate town vibes that are really going on here. Yeah. The Natural History Museum that she goes to in the next book is... I'm like a connoisseur of natural history museums. I go to a natural history museum if there is one when I'm in a place and I think it's the coolest one that I've been to including the one in Paris that I think is very famous but it's just like I don't know architecturally really beautiful and also has a bunch of really nerdy shit in it like here's a dodo here's what's up with dodos in Alice in Wonderland you know like I don't know it's just really great I'm gonna go one day (laughs) yeah I don't know it's cool really enjoyed Oxford a lot I think more than London honestly mostly because it's smaller and less overwhelming, but um, yeah, it was a good time. I know. I really want to go at some point in <laughs> in the future, <laughs> maybe in the far future when it's international travel sounds cool. Yep. But yeah, on like a certain theme park, you could just go to Oxford and give money to, to people that live there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> if you get really into this book, which you should. <laughs> yep. Wait, is it your turn or is it my turn? I mean, it was your turn, but that was mostly me talking, so I feel like it's your turn again. Uh, speaking of what about the about the second book in the Natural History Museum, we get some Lord Boreal foreshadowing that I feel like I always forget, <laughs> where it's like, oh yeah, he meets Lyra, <laughs> they interact at Mrs. Coulter's deeply awkward scene cocktail party. Yep, they sure do. And you know what? This Lord Boreal, it's like much more understandable that when they meet again in Will's world, Lyra isn't like, oh, I've met this guy before. Again, TV show Lord Boreal. I know she's young, but not so young that she's never had a crush. Like we know that she's had crushes, especially on like, you know, cool teens and whatever. The dude who plays Boreal on the TV show is so fucking attractive that I'm like, you would never forget having met this man. It is distracting to have him be that hot. Yeah. He's supposed to be, like, creepy and, like, kind of gross. And you're like, I mean, that the actor pulls off creepy, but there is zero gross taking place. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like Lord Boreal is, like, sort of what, Oh my god, what is that dude's name? I'm totally blinking out. Who plays President Snow in the Hunger Games? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like a bearded Tyler Sutherland plays like a creepy old dude, I think, very well. And I feel like when I was reading the when I'm reading the books, I'm always just like, Yeah, you're just like a creepy old white dude. So having him like be like this like hot black dude is like, you guys, what's happening? I mean, shout out to that actor. I'm glad you're working. But yeah, yeah, but yeah, he's here and still an asshole. Yep. <laughs> Giving us lots of really important exposition, though, so bless him. That he is. Um, I want to say that I think, you know, I read a lot of YA, have consistently since I was a young adult, and I think Philip Pullman gets kids more than basically any other author 
Or maybe it's just that he doesn't try to like soften or, you know, romanticize what being a child is like to make it less sort of brutal than it really is. But like he describes the experience of being a kid and like playing as a kid in the way that it feels as a kid, you know? Yeah. When he describes the wars that all of the different kids from the colleges and the townies and whatever are having, I'm like, that is exactly what it was like to like play cooties on the playground in elementary school. <laughs> like we did take it that seriously. And I really like that. It feels respectful of children's experiences in a way that I think is really rare. Yeah. I mean, I think it is, I think it's easy to be an adult and just sort of forget or sort of file off the sort of kind of like brutality of being a child and other children, you know, and yeah. how that sometimes it is like intentionally cruel, but sometimes it's just like, it's just part of being a kid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love Lyra's like dirtbag street orchard life yeah. that she is leading. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Here's my last thing, is just that the description, we have this very brief description of uh, Bolvanger from Kaiza, from Serafina's mm-hmm. Demon. And it just sounds so much like Mordor. And I really love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no bird flies there. They like burn this terrible fuel and like the the lights and you know animals stay away and it's just this like industrial building when we get there but the description that we get is just yeah it like literally sounds like they're describing mordor and it, i just fucking love it oh my god there are i should do one more thing sorry there are so many good description like descriptive lines in this book i really love how a lot of the descriptions are very like textual not like not like in a text but like as in like in a has like a really good feel of it. Like I actually wrote down that like there's a description like towards the beginning of the book about how much of Jordan was underground versus above ground. And so much of it was underground that it was sort of like the college was on a froth of stone. And you're just like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Why <laughs> is that? Uh and it's just, I don't know. The nerd part of me is just like, oh, it's so good. Yeah. And yeah, it is Bullfinger is like M- Mordor. Oh, it's you're right. It's just a, I mean, a terrible factory. Yeah. <laughs> Slash, worst summer camp, I guess. <laughs> yes. Welcome to Community Profiles, where we talk about character development. And you wanted to start with Lyra. I think we should start with Lyra, our heroine. Um, I love Lyra's just dirtbag tomboy of life that she's leading at the beginning of this book, you know. She's getting this hilariously piecemeal homeschool education and just, like, chilling and, like, making friends and hanging out. And I'm like, I love that mm-hmm. for her. Yeah. I mean, she's she's an orphan who, as we find out later, could be in, like, in a way worse living situation just because of who, because her parents are too incredibly connected political people and she's just but she's like has eked out what i think seems to be a very pleasant childhood you know 
Yeah. I mean, not like an always great childhood, but like a fine childhood. Yeah, I mean, we do get the incredibly tragic line that the scholars might have felt like a family if she knew what a family was, which... Yeah. Oh, my heart. (laughs) Yeah. That's a really rough line. Yeah. So, yes, living this okay lifestyle and then is swooped away by Miss Coulter, who does not abide by Lyra's tomboy lifestyle. (laughs) No. But it's also like dangling this like, oh, we're going to go to the north. It'll be great over her head. And it's just so many, so many things happen to Lyra in like what, like a three month period of time. Yeah. Um, I think it's so funny that thing that you cited earlier about like a child with more imagination or whatever, because Lyra has an incredible imagination. She's like this amazing storyteller and it's such a weird thing to just sort of like put in there i can't remember the context um but whenever he's like she doesn't have an imagination she's not an imaginative child and it's like i'm sorry she like shakes off this creepy dude by being like yeah my dad's a murderer he's out doing a job right now and like the stories that she's telling (laughs) all of the egyptian kids where she's like yeah i watched a dude like poison this man or tried to poison my father and then he had to drink the poison himself and like what is that if not an imagination you see, okay so i have to say though that i think part of it is that lyra is really good at like weaving a story from like bits of truth which is what is happening but i think for someone like me who like was an anxious child, now an anxious adult who, like, is always running 10 different what-if scenarios in my brain would not have been as quick-thinking as Lyra to be like, well, my dad's a murderer and he's coming right off the train, hey, you know? Because it's like, well, what if that doesn't work? Like, you don't know this guy, like, what if, you know, like, blah, 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 blah. And Lyra doesn't seem to have that hesitation of the, like, what if, what if, what if, what if, but this, then that kind of rumination, <laughs> which I feel like I admire as someone who is... Oh my God, Yes who has always been an anxious person about like, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. <laughs> and Lyra's just yeah. like, whatever, you know? Yeah, but I don't, I mean, I guess those are two kinds of imagination, but I think yeah. she just lacks, she, or no, she has an abundance of confidence. And I think also that abundance of confidence, she's like, even if her brain was to say, well, what if this murderer story doesn't work? Her I think Pan gets to be anxious for her, I think is where, like, she's split into into two, and Pan, her sweet Virgo Hufflepuff <laughs> demon, is like, what if, what if, what if? But he's he can't go talk to her right now. He can't be like, Lyra, what if this murderer story doesn't work? So she just gets to be like, I'm going to make up this story, and then if it doesn't work, then I'll do something else. Whatever. Who cares? I can run really fast. I can go hide in that theater. I I will solve this problem. Because historically, it's just sort of worked out that way for her. Which I love for her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I don't know. It's just... I think it's refreshing to be with a character who has issues but one of those issues is not depression (laughs) uh even though a lot of fucked up things happens to lyra she is very resilient at this part of the series where she's just like 
cool, living with Coulter, that's not working out. Cool, now I'm living with Ma Costa on this, like, boat. That's that's awesome. And it's like, cool, now we're going to the north. Rad, great, I'm ready, I'm prepared. Right. <laughs> She's, uh, she is very admirable. She's very brave. What a great, what a great main character. I know, I know. I, I feel like I like Lyra in a way that I don't often like a lot of other main characters. <laughs> Same. I think I was just thinking too, a lot of the, you know, angst of main characters comes from the weight of being chosen. And Lyra has the luxury of not knowing that she's chosen. Everyone else knows that she's chosen, but it comes with the caveat of she can't know. So no one can tell her. They just have to be like, yes, we are helping you for reasons. Yeah. And so she just gets to be a kid and be brave and be, you know, smart and kind and resourceful. Yeah. And not have to be like, oh my God, what if I fail? Like this huge burden has been placed on me. Yeah. More chosen ones should get to not know that they're chosen. That'd be so nice. (laughs) Yeah. Or even more chosen ones like Lyra, who are just like, not always, I don't want to say like likable, because I feel like there's now people have to be like, oh, you have to have a main, like a character that's likable. And it's like, no, you can just have a character that is complex in which they are likable yeah. in some ways and unlikable in other ways. Um, so should we talk about Azrael? We should. <laughs> um, I, uh, just because I was like play, paying really close attention this time, I feel like the first description of Azrael, I was always kind of just like, what are you trying to tell me, Phil Pullman? And today I was, and this time I was just like, Lord Azrael's description is like a top. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's a face to be like dominated by or to fight, but like never to pity. And I'm just like, what is this? What? <laughs> what yeah, is yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I feel like the fundamental incompatibility between him and Mrs. Coulter is that they're both tops. And I feel like they're both the kind of tops who would be like, yeah, you can handcuff me to the bed. Like, I can top you while you have me in restraints kind of tops. Yeah. 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 I feel like their relationship was just probably, you know, pouring, I don't know, kerosene into gasoline already on fire. Yeah. (laughs) It's like just two already explosive things coming together very quickly, explosively. Yeah, totally. So, but yeah, uh, Lord Azrael's uh, a top and also an asshole. <laughs> I have like such a s- soft spot for Azrael. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I know. I know that he's an asshole. I know that he does a lot of really asshole things. I'm like incredibly swayed. I feel like I like re- retrospectively read everything he does through the lens of the fact that he kills God and I'm like, you can do no wrong. <laughs> I don't mean that, but I just like, I've said before somewhere on this podcast that I think the hottest thing that you can want to do is kill God. And like the only thing hotter than that is fucking succeed in killing God. And I know like Will technically kills God, but like whatever. Yeah. Azrael takes out the Metatron, which is the acting god in that moment. And so I'm like, 
yeah, whatever you have to do to get there, man, do it. I that you're fine. That's hot. You're hot. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. So okay. So there's obviously eighty bajillion things on the internet written about how Philip Pullman is inspired by a Paradise Lost for like this entire series. But today yeah. I learned because all right. Full caveat, I have not read Paradise Lost because it is very dense, but I've wanted to because this book, it's like, it's sort of like if Encanto is a hundred years of solitude for kids, this series is like Paradise Lost for kids, Mm -hmm. (laughs) sort of similarly. But apparently, so John Mill, so Paradise Lost is where you get like hot, charming Satan from. And I was reading something where someone was just like, yeah, Lord Azrael is Satan, one of the, one of the like classic like Milton Satan's in this series like he's charming he's hot he wants to kill God he wants to rebel against the church and he's going to convince you to do it and you're going to be like hell yeah (laughs) it's work it's working that's what I'm saying it's working on me so yes so I and I feel like when I read that I'm like yeah a lot of things about because like yeah like Lord Azrael wants to kill God I'm like yes fucking do it (laughs) that sounds great (laughs) seriously I'm I would join his army in a heartbeat yeah, feel free to talk about him being an asshole. However, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to like not make space for the Azrael's an asshole argument. I mean, it's just really funny because like, unlike Miss Coulter, who has basically zero interactions with Lyra up until the month and a half of this book where they're living together. <laughs> right. Azrael sees her occasionally since she was, you know, an infant living at Jordan and he's like pretending to be her uncle, which is the most hilarious open secret if like a bunch of people are like yeah okay dude (laughs) she looks exactly like you but whatever (laughs) (laughs) and he's just like the least paternal uncle he could possibly be it's just like i know you're trying to maintain a front my dude but you could like you could pretend a smidge more (laughs) Mm -hmm. the way that he treats lyra i agree is very like you know, I mean, he like, man, like twists her arm really badly the first time we see them interact and stuff like that. That we see like literally every adult interacting with children hitting them in this book. It's a that kind of world. Yeah, like even Ma Costa is described multiple times as hitting children. It's like whatever. I mean, yeah. bad, but in this world, it's not something that is even in the realm of being thought about as bad yet. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, that starts things off on a really sour note. But then the way I don't I really like the scene where we see this flashback of her having talked to him and he's like proud of her for having been like playing on the roof and is like, but have you checked out the basement yet? And I'm like, that's cool. Like, that's fun. I love adults who are like not overly trying to keep kids safe and are like exploring the basement of the college where you live is like fun and feels dangerous, but is actually, you know, relatively a safe yeah. thing to do. And I think that's cool. I don't know. Also, we learned that he's used his like power and influence to advocate for the Egyptians multiple times and also physically saved multiple people that, you know, society treats like shit during the flood i don't know i'm team Azrael more than i think i expected to be. <laughs> i mean he's like he's like he seems to be like a solid politician and a good scientist just like you know really solid like c plus and the like <laughs> but okay i will say though and 
there are these like extra bits of like Phil Pullman like filling out the series and some addition that he calls them lantern slides that, that were collected into a col- into a short collection like into a small book which you maybe have read but one of them mm-hmm. is about how every year at Jordan Lyra would have to be scrubbed off and like get her photo taken and she had no clue and didn't care where those photos went but they always went to Azrael which is like yeah very cute but I'm also like it, 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 it is very cute and like maybe it's also just maybe he wanted to be more but couldn't because of the whole like oh yeah this is just my uh my niece <laughs> open right. secret again uh Ezra seems like a cool dude just maybe not super emotionally available <laughs> Definitely. I'm not he's not a good dad. Um I think I might just like him generally. Yeah. Faye and Rach of her dark materials are gonna be so ashamed of me when they listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, listen, he you know, he he's charming everyone and I mean I get it. <laughs> I too would join his army. <laughs> Yeah. Should I want Miss Coulter? Yeah, we should. Or Marisa, which is such a good name. Um, she's such a good villain. Oh my god. Seriously. She's so evil. <laughs> like she is so evil. And it she it's just great. And just I mean point point blank period. She's just such an incredible villain the intro to her where we see her you know lure this kid in you know to be to be kidnapped or whatever and the kid is like they oh my god phil does such a good job of like making this child the tenderest little thing like you just want to hug him and then she's just like lures him away and then you see her like help the kids write these letters to their parents and then just throw them in the fucking fire and like the feeling that I got in my body the first time I read that it's been 10 years and I can still remember the like shock and horror that I experienced it's like a very much like a it's like a stomach drop where you're just like because it's very matter of fact about her just throwing it in the fire you're like I'm sorry you what 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 yeah, it's like suddenly you're in a rolled doll book. Like she is that kind of evil adult. Yeah, no, true, <laughs> truly. Yeah, I love how her. I love how her demon doesn't have a name. Phil Pullman was just like, I have never thought of a name. He is just too malicious in my brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, dude. Yeah, and it's. I think what is particularly insidious about Miss Coulter, especially in this first part of the book where she like goes from like basically being a stranger to Lyra to like Lyra living with her is the sort of like, it's a very subtle, not a subtle Miss Coulter is trying to mold Lyra into being a more conventional member of society you know, especially yeah. as, like, a young girl who has, up until this point, just been living her, like, dirtbag, orphan, tomboy life. Yeah. And I think the part that always really strikes me is... Miss Miss Coulter is where we get, like, the first sort of weird 
body slash sexuality slash puberty shame in the book where uh, Miss Coulter is like bathing Lyra and she like looks at Pan and he as opposed to like looking at Lyra while she's bathing like sort of averts his eyes because it's somehow like shameful and it's like cool thanks really glad that you're really uh, working doing the patriarchy just really working for the patriarchy here for the magisterium because clearly Lyra doesn't have enough shame for herself to be a good citizen a good right uh citizen of the church so we really got to start hammering it in here yep you know yeah yeah and she obviously she gets more complex as the books go on but definitely these first 11 chapters you're just like oh you are you're so evil you're so so evil oh my god (laughs) yeah it's like kidnapping children to mutilate them and then not quite kidnapping your daughter but sort of just like very half-assed mothering your daughter i mean and i think that comparing the scene where asriel grabs Lyra's arm because he's like what the fuck are you doing in here to the point where like Mrs. Coulter's golden monkey demon attacks panel Lyman which seems so much more like unnecessarily vicious for the situation and then just like so much more of a like dude you're an adult uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> what, what are you doing we, we, we see a lot of casual brutality from adults towards Lyra and towards children in this book in general but it seems like even with that like what Miss Coulter does over an argument over a fucking like leather bag it's just like oh mm, you are not a good person yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, totally i think pan says that she's treating lyra more like a pet than like a child you know than like a daughter or even what lyra wants to be which is like her quote-unquote assistant and i think she told that's totally right like he's got it dead on is that you know, she may be trying to be vaguely motherly toward Lyra, but the way that she's going about it is really kind of like a, just about like showing her off and, you know, training her and not about yeah emotional interaction, which maybe we could use to like slide into talking about Farter Corum because yeah. he's such a good parent. Oh my God. Yeah. Farter Corum is like such a good dad. <laughs> such a good dad the scene where lyra's you know just trying to get anyone to listen to her and god i wish i had written down the actual quote but it says something like he took pity on the like fierce desperate little girl and you know basically started like hanging out with her and like letting her feel involved you're like yeah that's parenting First parenting we've really seen this whole book is being like, I might think that you're being unreasonable, but I can see that your need is tangibly real and that makes it important. Yeah, I mean, he's the first adult. So I got myself all worked up. No, he's the, <clears> first, <throat> he's the first adult that we see treat Lyra like a person. <laughs> yeah. And this is, yeah, I think we're like at least another hundred pages into the book where we get an adult <laughs> who it's like, yeah, you can hang out with me and like, you know, I'll listen to you, like your concerns and your interests and your worries. And like, I'm not going to smack you in the head at any point right. or, or anything. 
Um, and um, I love him. He's a he's a yeah. people's he's a people's scholar and a disabled king, and I'm like here for it. Yeah. So. And a seer. Ooh, and a seer. Whatever that means, but I love it. Yeah. He's a witch. I mean, not yeah. in the way that witches are in this book, but I'm like, I see why a witch would get with you, dude. I get yeah, it. totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the politics section where we talk about things that are fucked up. I'm going to start light and then work my way down. Cool. The church is the villain, and I'm here for it. I'm so here I for know. it. I feel like Philip Pullman is one of the few people in this world that I can confidently say hates Christianity as much as I hate Christianity. Yeah, because, I mean, the whole the whole genesis of this first book is that the church is trying to, like, literally destroy the thing that makes people feel good and learn and grow, which is their demons. Because they're like, that's bad. Getting more self-aware and more realizing that of your personhood is, it's a sin. You have to control right. it and destroy yeah. anything good. And I'm like, well, that's never not topical. <laughs> yeah. How fun. Yeah. And I feel like Miss Coulter, I feel like there's like, a hundred hundreds of Miss Coulter on like Instagram right now who are like mm. <laughs> doing the patriarchy's work and abusing their children. <laughs> so. Yep. 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 So yeah, the church is always always the villain, and I'm in this book takes a, a hard stance, a hard stance against on that, which is like just fucking perfect. Yeah. Everyone, give your children these books. <laughs> You can take or leave giving them Harry Potter. It sounds like a lot of work to unpack with kids these days, but like absolutely give your children these books. It's like a sign of respect and being like, I trust you to like develop your own morality and be a good person without the interference of institutions that like don't want you to be an individual. Yeah. A like knowledgeable, aware individual who has like your own thoughts and desires uh yeah this is definitely the like growing up is cool kit book <laughs> yeah uh yeah jesus yeah what a what a good vibe to be like <laughs> <laughs> if the church is trying to smash out anything good about being a person they suck <laughs> yeah i feel like the this series of our podcast this episode and the next five presumably as we work through these books it's probably going to get us more emails than like almost anything that we've done because i'm just like not gonna even try and hide how much i just think that christianity is like the most evil thing that has ever happened to this world so but i will invite everyone to put your keyboards away because i don't care <laughs> Yeah, so don't think most of Phil Pullman, he wrote this series. <laughs> he will also not give a fuck. He does not care. <sighs> okay, what else should we talk about? Uh, so my next point is sort of a piggyback off of. Which is, it should be no surprise that the gobblers, the child mutilating wing of the Magisterium, is like, we're just going to abduct a bunch of like poor kids and like 
in Lyra's world, the Egyptian kids, which is, you know, uh, very much based on the IRL Romani culture. It, it seemed, but like in the series, a lot of this, like the people, the regular Manisterium following people are just like, man, yeah, kids are disappearing. That's fucked up. And then are just going about their lives. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what a succinct indictment of, of like, I don't know, moderate religious people who are just like, yeah, man, wow. That sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. Right. It's like, not my kids, not my problem, basically. Like, I find it unsurprising that in a, like, religious capitalist society, like, all the people of Trillicent, I don't know if that's how you say that, are like, whatever, they pay us money, we're going to ignore the fact that they're, like, trafficking kids through our town. But the fact that, like, the witches and the bears are like, eh, we're unconcerned. Maybe not the bears, but I don't know. Particularly the fact that, like, numerous people are like, yeah, the witches, like, that's not really their thing right i'm like it's kind of everybody's thing though actually because something like trafficking children to like cut their souls out that's just something that's like objectively bad by any measure of morality that's just a bad thing to do and so you should care you know whether or not your business is with nature a bad thing is happening and you know about it like you should at the very least be concerned about it right and the fact that there we find out there are witches that are working with not like with miss coulter and the gobblers but are like apparently on the payroll of some kind maybe against other right. witches is sort of like i think that the witches neutrality is maybe not as neutral after all it's like if you can be convinced because right. if like you know if seraphina puckla could be convinced to help Lyra and Egyptians, and it's like clearly someone else can be convinced for whatever Miss Coulter is promising them, you know, whatever empty yeah. promise that is, or maybe it's threat. I don't know. Maybe she's fucking a witch queen. Who knows? <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, I mean, we found out that the witches kind of do what they want, and I think that they take that to an extreme about we do what we want. <laughs> yeah. 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 I do. I do find it. Also not surprising that we see in the book that the Egyptians are soon to be the only people who are, like, mounting an actual, like, organized rescue and attack on Balvanga because uh, that's the kind of shit marginalized people need to do when it's like, oh, man, wow, yeah, I guess the, the government and the church is colluding to uh, abduct our children and, not gonna, and the cops aren't going to do anything about it. I guess we got to do it ourselves. Right. Yeah, because it... Yeah, it's interesting because, like, the kids that they take, they're either kids like Tony Mercario's who no no one's going to miss, sort of, you know? Yeah. Or it's people that they know they can kidnap their kids and, like, no one will intercede on behalf of the kids right. and the adults who are missing them. Yeah. It's a very good, very topical, always topical thing to be like, these populations are like equally vulnerable in the society that we have created basically yeah. i don't know if that's saying it correctly but yeah like kids in general are vulnerable and there are kids that are definitely more vulnerable than others it reminds me a little bit of when people 
rightly critique true crime and they're like missing white lady syndrome where it's like national news and a like white lady disappears but then there'll be like strings of similar you know multiple like black or brown women being abducted and everyone's just like that's not news whatever right that was kind of people to disappear all the time enter whatever excuse here you know right right and then we even see in the book where it's like even though there have been dozens of kids disappearing for, like, seemingly months, Lyra, this, like, beautiful blonde child, disappears. And it's all over. It's The cops are just searching all over the country for this one missing child, even though dozens upon dozens of kids have been disappearing for months. Like, I can't yeah. imagine Roger's mom seeing that shit and being like, are you fucking kidding me? You know? Or, like, any of the parents to, who noticed to be like, I'm sorry, you're looking for a little blonde girl from London? Like, my kid's been gone for three months. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Editorials, where we rant about stuff. I hate that two separate people, when Lyra's like, I want to go to the North, are like, Pat, Pat, I'll bring you a walrus tusk. <laughs> It's so insulting rude. the first time, but it is so much worse the second time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just... Just let her go. Why not? She's been doing whatever she wants to anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, just don't condescend to her. Like, don't act like, oh, I'll bring you a little gift is like, it's somehow, you know gonna make up for the fact that she can't have this thing that she desperately wants so yeah yeah i hate it yeah um so despite having read these books several times i realized that lyra sort of having this unexpected affinity to read the alethiometer is it's like a part of her hero's journey because she needs the information that the alethiometer provides for her to like, in order to be moving closer towards her sort of uh, Eve like destiny, mm-hmm. you know, is it the apple? Is that what you're saying? I mean, I guess a, a little bit is the apple, but mostly I think I've always sort of struggled with the fact that, you know, this is the book where Lyra sort of realizes she can read the alethiometer without needing a bunch of books and like a PhD in alethiometer reading, essentially. Yeah. But then she loses it at the end of the books, which I always thought was kind of, which was bullshit. But I'm real, but I'm kind of coming to the realization that it's sort of like, since Lyra is sort of serving a greater good in her journey anyway, it's kind of like, this is sort of a gift. Like this, this is a gift for her in order to, be more equipped to like handle her journey, but she doesn't totally need it once she comes to the end of it, I guess. And then it has to be a like, well, now you do have to get your PhD. (laughs) Sorry. I really hate it, but we can revisit this when we get to the end of book three. Yeah, no. And and definitely. I mean, it doesn't detract from that that I still hate it, but it kind of reminds me at the end of the book, Matilda, where once Matilda is in like a loving home where she can 
exercise her intellectual curiosity, she no longer has the power to move things with her mind because it's sort of like she has the freedom to do, to read her books and to be intellectually curious and stuff like that. And so I guess I'm kind of wondering if it's a little bit like that. Still bullshit. I agree. And but and we'll talk about that. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna simmer on that okay. for the next six to eight weeks or however long it's gonna be before we talk about, <laughs> talk that about book. All right. Um I really like, you know, I think it's Tony Costa is telling Lyra about all the like magical people and things in the north. And one of the things is ghosts the size of children with no heads. And, like, that's clearly severed children. And I really like that. That, like, you know, I think Bullvanger hasn't been there for that long at this point. Like, maybe a couple of years. And they've been sort of slowly ramping up. But in that time, the few kids like Tony Macarios that we see who have escaped have already, like, this this fiction has built up around them to try and explain the horrors that right have been unleashed and it, it like to the point where it's traveled from i don't know north of norway wherever they are all the way to oxford i just think that's really cool yeah no it is it is really good uh yeah i think i actually did not realize that until literally this <laughs> yeah no like, same me too i'm like <laughs> children the size of uh mm. Uh, all right. I have a question for you. Okay. Which is that obviously we meet a lot of people and they're demons, but this is also the part of the series where we get the one mention of the one dude who has, who is a guy with a male demon. Is that guy gay? Let's discuss. <laughs> no, that woman is trans. Perfect. <laughs> We can talk more about that in health and science because I want to get like into the magical science-y-ness of like demon genders. Yes. Excellent. Um, that was maybe my last rant. <laughs> All right. I have a couple more. Cool. Um, one, the story of when Azrael killed Mr. Coulter is so fucking brutal. Holy shit. He, it's the fact that <laughs> after he's killed this man for like seemingly pretty good reason namely that man was actively trying to kill him yeah um he like takes lyra baby tiny baby lyra and is like dancing around the body like singing a little song and is like calls for Costa to bring him some wine and then is like clean up that blood and, like, holy shit oh my god <laughs> he gives zero fucks yeah, no, that part of Azrael, I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, sorry, I feel like Azrael is like, there's people I like, there's people I can use, and there's everyone else. <laughs> and I feel like Lyra's in the very short list of people I like. That is an overlap. I mean, it does sometimes overlap with people I can use, but yes. <laughs> I like that the... The Egyptians generally seem to fall into the people I like for Azrael because it doesn't seem like up until this point where they're like, if it's convenient for us, we'll rescue him from the bears. Like he gets anything out of advocating for them. I think it seems like he just does it because he thinks it's right, which 
I like about him. Yeah, I think he has a very strong sense of what is right and wrong, which I deeply appreciate. And he's definitely good at coalition building, as is Lyra, <laughs> which is yeah. an other important part of uh, doing political good, is yeah. being able to have allies of all kinds, which he has, you know? Yep. Yeah. Um, my next thing is just that by the time they're done shopping in Trollisund for Lyra's cold weather gear, she is wearing literally an entire natural history museum's <laughs> worth of dead animals. She, she sure is. <laughs> She's wearing like half of a reindeer and like two thirds of a seal. Yeah. There's some other, I think there's at least like one other critter going on in there. Maybe it's like, oh, a uh, wolverine. Just wearing a wolverine fur hood because they shed water or something like that. Yeah. It is wild and it's so gross. Like, <laughs> I feel like of all of the things in these books that would have been upsetting to me if I had read them when I was a kid, that would have been the thing for like, you know, 12 year old vegetarian Mark where I'd have been like, I hate this book. <laughs> yeah. She's warm as she's warm as hell though. <laughs> she's so warm. She's wearing a whole condom of seal intestines or something. Yeah, something real so, weird. It's so weird. It's translucent. Anyway. And then we get this like terrible foreshadowing where Pan drags Lyra by the by the soul to go talk to Yorick. And it's like they would rather die than be parted and face that again. And I'm like, oh, you're gonna do both. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Okay, wait, I do I do have one more thing. Okay. I absolutely love okay, so the Mrs. Coulter's like cocktail party, whatever she is doing, is really funny because of how many of the guests are like, who the fuck is this child? Is this Miss Coulter's child? Why is she with this random 12-year-old girl? <laughs> And I'm like, this culture is actually is, is for the most part pretty calculated in what she's doing. I'm like, did you did you think this through? Because I think everyone's just gonna ask you about this. I mean, she's been parading Lyra around, like showing her off since Lyra got there. So I'm sure she does. It seems like part of what she's doing with this party is signaling to the other, like ablation board people like look at this new lure that i have mm. oh interesting so i don't know why this didn't occur to me do you actually think that using lyra as a lure was always mrs culture mrs culture's intention of like grabbing her from from oxford i don't know that that was necessarily her whole intention like i think there is a part of her that is like what if i tried like being a mom like what, wouldn't that yeah. be fun wouldn't that be like neat yeah but it seems like you know she does she is trying to like get lyra to a point where she will think that everything that mrs coulter is doing is like right and good and it seems to me like it makes sense even if it wasn't necessarily to lure kids that there would be like some use a usefulness for her it, even maybe just as like a cover of like i'm not kidnapping kids see i have a kid yeah or maybe to even get into more places where you have a kid 
you know. Like, yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah, because it is very confusing. It's like, so you've been like absent for 12 years and all of a sudden you decided you want to be in my life, but not tell me you're my mom. Okay, cool. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also she wasn't able to be in Lyra's life because the, like before Azrael was imprisoned, he was able to like enforce the college, not letting Mrs. Coulter get anywhere near her. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess I just assumed it was like part of a like, oh, now I can grab her because Azrael's in bear prison <laughs> except not <Yeah>. really <laughs> the his nice northern spa that he's had yeah 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 god yes that's where the millennials should all move <laughs> we don't have to go to war we can just look at the aurora and like right take baths sounds, sounds <laughs> great so, yeah that's so nice <laughs> Welcome to the health and science section, where we talk about magic and science and magical science. Do you think that a demon can become an animal that you don't know exists? That is a good question. No. Okay, so if you're like raised in the woods, the only animals that you know about are like foxes, deer, squirrels, chipmunks, and birds. Your demon has to become one of those five things. Yes, but I, I do I do think that if you see like a picture of like an animal or like you go to like a zoo or someone is like telling you about a thing, I think that also counts because when Lyra and Roger and the sellers getting drunk, their demons turn into gargoyles, which aren't real creatures. But I mean, I'm I'm sure there are carved gar- gargoyles everywhere in oxford yeah you know? and pan becomes a dragon at some point yeah and then in the in the section where lyra is in the like tombs of the past masters one of their demons is a basilisk <laughs> which isn't a real animal but it's like oh it might you could... be in her world though this you know that is true are there dragons in her i don't know <laughs> like, oh you know what great question there's talking polar bears there could be real dragons. There could be real dragons. I guess so. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I don't know. I think it would be really cool, though, if you did, like, if you suddenly your demon was fixed and it was like an animal, you had to, like, go to the library and look up what animal your demon had turned into to find out what kind of person you are. <laughs> I think I mean, that would be really interesting. I mean, I, I, I think that would happen in a society like ours where it's like you we just absorb so much information and like are seeing so much stuff that like if my demon settle as an animal I saw at a zoo once when I was like 10 I'd be like what like what what the fuck kind of bird is this or something that like migrates through Michigan like twice a year you know like that's not outside of the realm of possibility but I could definitely see something like that happening if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, especially because we get a bit in the the second half of the book, which I mean, I think will become a politics section thing also. But like, it seems that kids that know more about other kind of animals have their demons turn into a, of a, a wider variety of animals. So I think it really must be a like exposure knowledge thing where you have to at least know about an animal in order for your demon to turn into it. Yeah, that makes sense. Which really brings up what some really wild demons must have looked like when it's like, you know, like, like old timey, like beastie, beastie, or whatever those animal guides. And you're just like, have you ever seen a horse or an ox before? 
<laughs> and you're like, oh, oh my no. God. People walking around <laughs> with like the weirdest fucking cat demon. Oh my God. Oh, Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the cats with human faces and shit. Yeah. Oh my God. That's like the actual origin of the Cheshire Cat was just some very confused Victorian's demon. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay, what's next? Uh, just some fun facts about Miss Coulter's Golden Monkey Demon. So, uh, the newer editions of the Golden Compass have like little illustrations done by Phil Pullman. And so, what Mrs. Coulter's demon looks like in those illustrations looks something like a green monkey. I'm going to drop that in the chat for you. It is a monkey that has reddish gold fur, but also it sort of like has also kind of a like greenish gray and white fur happening also. They're pretty cute, I think. Definitely not as profoundly golden as i was imagining yeah and i think that and what i was imagining which is what they use in the terrible movie but i wonder if what people are often thinking about is the uh gold lion tamarind monkey which is just straight up like luscious reddish gold fur which is i think what i had always envisioned because they have like they have like little black faces and it's like just like this outrageous color. <laughs> oh yeah, this way makes way more sense. Also, these look like something out of labyrinth or dark crystal. <laughs> these do not look like real animals. <laughs> this is not a real. This was made by Jim Henson. You cannot convince me. Muppets. What the. F- Fuck. Wait, was there was there something else that you were thinking about that wasn't one of? I mean, I don't know. I guess I didn't imagine something out of life. My brain just made a monkey. You know. Yeah. We also find out that demons can see ghosts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is so cool. Yeah. I don't know. I have a bunch of other like random things. So I guess I don't know like what should be. Yeah. Let's let's jump back to the demons who are the quote-unquote same gender as their person yeah because you know you and i share a love for magical confirmation of trans identities yes and i think that there's something so appealing about like in this world there would be no room for transphobia because your demon would be all of the confirmation anyone outside of yourself could need of yeah. what your gender is, regardless of what your body is. Yeah. Cause like literally Chuck Tingle's like gender is in your soul, right? Like, and then your soul is on the outside. <laughs> it's, it's really neat. I think that's really cool. And I, I, I don't know. I just think that following the rules that he's set down, Bernie is obviously a trans woman. I'm here for this. I've I've actually often thought about the amount of living creatures that don't have that don't ascribe to a sort of binary gender as uh Western world likes to think about it. And then it's like if you have one of those animals, like there you go. Great. Yeah. Cool. Your your demon is a like a slug that procreates asexually. Great. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're dead you like 
that's that's fucking rad. Yeah, and I I think it's like an interesting question about you know like what makes the gender of a demon because like not all animals have sexual dimorphism either. So yeah, but whatever. I mean, I think that if you're like a gender fluid person and your demon is a robin, you're, even as an adult, your demon, like, the the phenotype, right? That's the one that's on, like, how, what it looks like, yeah, yeah. would be different from day-to-day, moment-to-moment as your internal experience of your gender changed, which would also be really rad for not having to tell people what your pronouns were that day, because they could just look at your fucking demon and know. Neat. <laughs> Yeah, I'm definitely uh, here for this, and I mean, I just, I mean, demons as metaphor for, like, personhood and your personal experience is, like, so fucking cool. (laughs) Like, it's just, like, it's, I just love it so much. (laughs) You know, and there's just so many places you can take it. I mean, I think a lot of in the book is literary based and like symbolism based and like i think i'm sure when people read this and they're just like oh what's my demon i think it's also you know you take into account like symbolism and you know other kind of stuff but it's just it's so fucking cool Mm -hmm. just what a good way to think about yourself yeah and also i think in this series also it kind of i don't want to say this there's also a sort of maybe collaborative aspect to it also, or not like collaborative, but like, so we get a description of father of the color of father Coram's ginormous Maine Coon-esque <laughs> Tegman, mm-hmm. who is just like the most beautiful, like autumn color palette color. And then the fact that Lyra, that Pan Lyman ends up settling with a very similar fur color is like an obvious, like inspired by like, both of their love of Father Coram is like oh no it's so beautiful oh sorry because <laughs> then you can think about that too you're just like oh man the like form and like shade of, of your of your very soul can, is also affected by like the people that you love in your life and I'm like I know that's why Father Coram is the best dad oh my god my feelings <laughs> Oh. Yeah. Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> Wait. So here's another question that I have. Yes. So Lyra can tell that Kaiza is a demon and not a regular goose before, you know, Kaiza talks or yeah. anything. And also it seems like they can tell when someone doesn't have a demon immediately, which like what if your demon is a mouse and in your pocket or like a moth and on your back or, yeah. you know, whatever. There's lots of ways that someone could be there and physically have a demon that you just can't see in yeah. that moment. But when someone doesn't have a demon, they just know immediately. And I want to know what you think. What is, what is it? What makes a, what makes a demon dif- different, like distinguishable from a normal animal? Etc. All right. So I have, I have two thoughts about this. I think when it comes to if a person has a demon or not, I think a lot of that is just assumption, maybe. Or if it's like, if I can't see it, or like, if you're not 
somehow visibly having like uh, your demon like on your person. I think people just probably make like snap judgment thoughts about that. Um, so it probably does suck if you have like a mouse demon or like a ladybug demon. Like you're probably just like, I don't know. But the like sick feeling that they report experiencing when they see someone without a demon it seems like it's bigger than that because like lyra has pan in her pocket for two-thirds of the books i feel like because they're in dangerous situations or they're in you know our world and he has to be hidden and we don't ever see anyone look at her and like react because they can't immediately see pan so there has to be something else right something wrong that they're sensing i mean maybe it's a thing where it's like maybe it's the other people's demons that are sensing if there's a Mm. demon or not like it it must i think it must just be a thing that you learn kind of like the difference between seeing a like fake plant and a real plant or, you know, the way that we can kind of notice something is like CGI in like in a movie or something where it's just mm-hmm. like you're, you're seeing like you're seeing so many demons and so many people with demons that like you sort of must be like in your brain. You just know like what is a cat demon versus a like actual cat, you know, like something yeah. about it must just click. Yeah, that makes sense. OK, what's next? Since you brought up Kaiza, which which demons can just uh, their demons can go wherever they want to, which is pretty. Which I don't want to say seems ideal, but like maybe a little bit. Seems yeah. Ideal. <laughs> yeah, and I think they go through like a separation process, like Lyra and Pan go through. But it seems like it's ritualized. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get there. But I think it sounds very lovely. I guess I just think about it. Because there's there's a scene where we have all of the Egyptians in their in their meeting hall and they're deciding about going north, and it seems like Lyra describes that there's like demons like in the rafters and like along like the side. So there must so you must have enough space to be able to like if you're in a crowd like for your demon to maneuver to not touch anyone else. Right. But I think I think about that all the time when it's like what if you're like in a train car and you have like a giant like you. Like, Lord Azrael must never be able to go into a crowded place because he has a, like, 12-foot-long fucking demon. <laughs> you know? Or however long... I mean, I guess most of the length of a snow leopard is tail. But, like, this had a small cat. Snow leopards are pretty big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like there might be a distinction between someone accidentally brushing your demon with their leg as they walk past and someone like grabbing or like putting their hands intentionally on your demon you know in the same way that there are like different ways that you can be touched by a stranger yeah and one of them has you know no impact on your emotional well-being and others have a lot of impact on your emotional well-being yeah so it might be that you know if they're in a a crowded zeppelin because that's public transport in this world you know still maria sits by the window and like maybe the person sitting opposite them might like accidentally brush her with their foot or something but that's not that's not considered part of the taboo like it would be if they reached out and like pet her or something like that yeah no that makes sense 
And yeah, and I mean, and like maybe those sort of like physical limitations also is sort of maybe limits the amount of colonialization you can do. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know. Because I think if I ever, if I think about U.S. modern life with demons, I'm just like, I can't, you know, I still, I'm still like, I can't imagine like as many people as can cram to like a subway car with all of their demons, you know? Yeah. But it doesn't matter because America, you just drive everywhere. So maybe you... <laughs> it doesn't matter how big your demon is. You just throw it in your S&P. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> do you think that the form of your demon changes how far away from you your demon can go? Because it seems like bird pan and dolphin pan can go much further away from Lyra without them being in pain than any mammal that pan turns into. Yeah, there must be. I feel like the like couple of yards thing does not seem to be a hard and fast rule. Because we even have like the golden monkey like goes into a different room as Miss Coulter. And I'm like, that is more than a couple of yards. Well, yeah, but they're like freaked out that he can go that far away from her. That's true. Which I think is never fully explained. And I know there are different theories. I always just assume that she like figured out how like because there's like a lake where the witches go to do their separation and that she just like figured that out and like went there and did it by herself which which seems like a thing that she would do right she'd be like this would be extremely convenient my demon has hands like imagine the shenanigans we could get up to if i do this yeah she doesn't give a fuck about her demon yeah and i also just feel like just you know like in real life i'm sure there's just like maybe some people just have naturally like a longer distance from their demons than other people you know yeah for whatever reason because biodiversity i don't know right yeah and like for real if you had a bird demon even if you're not a witch and it can't go like miles away from you just from like how bird flight works you would have to be able to go further away from your demon for your demon to be able to stay in the air so yeah it must it must be flexible depending on form yeah yeah anyway moving on we've been recording for so long (laughs) yeah oh we we find out in this part of the book that there's there is a taboo about someone else touching your demon which is also i think a little more complex than that what do you mean like lyra learns that it is taboo but then we end up learning that it's like Unless you're your lovers, then it's like okay, or like or like that kind of lovers. I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, she also, and it makes sense. She's like, even in war, like no one would ever touch another person's demon. But we also learn, you know, several people violate Lyra by grabbing her demon in the course of this book. But like, obviously, when you're teaching a kid about the taboo, you're like, it literally never happens. Like, no one would ever do that. Yeah, the part about the like military, I'm like, yeah, wait until you learn a little more history, Lyra. Um, Yeah. Sorry. But yeah, I mean, yeah, but for a kid, you just that's that's what you tell them. Obviously. Right. Yeah. Uh, Okay. My last thing is, I spent so much time looking this up. to try to figure out if what it was if it was based on any fact but lyra is hidden by the costas in a cedar box which demons it makes them sleepy so i guess they just don't sense lyra and pan uh i cannot find any real life sources of maybe why that would be um except that 
cedar is used in the Bible several times and is also mentioned in the Iliad as like there's a cedar lined room where someone has a bunch of cool stuff. So I'm like probably just literary inspired. It's like cedar is a cool symbolic wood to have like if you're smuggling anything, you want to avoid the cops demons finding out. It's also one of the few woods that just has like a really strong distinctive smell even a really long time after it's cut too yeah i spent a lot of frustrating time trying to see if you could fool or like throw off tracking dogs with cedar but a lot of it is just like is your dog allergic to cedar don't use it in their bedding and i'm like okay but this now i'm gonna try to find (laughs) google (laughs) interesting I was hoping that you were going to say the thing that you spent time looking up was about chameleons not needing to eat. I was like, <laughs> what is this? But that sounds like a Jesse problem. <laughs> um, that? Okay. So I do happen to know that. It is just, and sort of going back to our people in history being confused about animals, people didn't know what chameleons ate, that they thought they just existed on air. What a weird thing to think, though. What a weird thing to think. Um, yes. Uh, so that's why chameleon is one of the symbols is air. Wacky, wacky thinking back in the day. That's so weird. I know. I also think it's shocking, even if you did think that, that its first meaning would be air and not camouflage, because I feel like that's the main thing we think of with chameleons is camouflage. Yeah, for real. People being confused about what animals can do is definitely in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The Gaily Prophet. We might be starting a new feed for this new thing that we're doing. If we do, we'll let you know. But, like, keep on the lookout for that information. Check the show notes for all of the things, including some links, I think, regarding the things we talked about today. We'll be back in two weeks with the rest of this book. And until next time. I support arming bears. <laughs>